We're studying uh, Galatians, uh, grafted in. This is lesson three, uh, the rabbinic solution, part one. And today's uh, the 26th of October, 2008. Let's bless God. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and safeguard you. May the Lord illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. Amen. We've been looking at for the last, uh, since we began the study for the last month, we've been looking at uh, Galatians in view of, uh, and we've been doing background uh, with regard to Galatians in view of uh, the first century and understanding the uh, the issues at hand, and we've as we've often discussed the uh, the point of the uh, of reading the scripture, especially apostolic scriptures in context, is uh, that things change depending upon our uh, our own uh, perception, our own theological biases. Things change as we read them based on our culture, and to assume that we are reading things. Uh, from our perspective is uh, is often a very dangerous thing uh, it doesn't always mean that we're wrong but we need to be very careful how we read and how we how we discover what is truly being said just the changing of words as we've discussed is a is a very important part of of uh, examining the scriptures in the way that God intends us to know them uh, one thing that we know is that uh, um, the 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 dialogue uh, of of the uh, of the 16th century, uh, specifically with regard to uh, um, the Reformation and the Protestant uh, uh, movement coming out of the Roman Catholic movement, and the usage of the Book of Galatians as a as a uh, um, a uh, a worksheet uh, from which to uh, draw up a new theology. Uh, is in fact some something that has caused us great consternation in discovering what it was that Paul truly said. And as as we uh, as we prepare for this discussion on Galatians, setting the stage, setting that that historical stage is very important. But it's also important uh, to examine what the scriptures truly say with regard to those very true historical issues. We've seen the historical issues uh, and the biblical issues, uh, starting with the fact that first, uh, there, there is no question that God called Israel as his chosen people with a specific uh, purpose uh, to bring all nations to him. And uh, we also saw uh, the, the problem is that uh, oftentimes uh, Gentiles uh, lead Israel astray through pagan ways, uh, through various, uh, uh, whether they be close by or, or uh, integrated within them. They had the tendency to draw uh, Israel away from God. And, and uh, Israel had a tendency to want to see uh, the nations around 
her and wanted a king like her and wanted to do her ways and, and soon fell into um, uh, sin in, in idolatry. And we saw also how uh, last week this, this process of uh, returning from the exile, the Babylonian exile in the 6th century uh, BCE, we saw that, in fact, uh, Israel did a marvelous job, uh, specifically uh, Nehemiah, uh, the scribe Ezra, the great assembly, did a marvelous job in setting up, in setting up boundaries and in, in returning Israel to a consistent uh, teaching of, uh, of, of the word of God. Uh, and we saw then also that thus there was some strain. Uh, during uh, after that time, and by the time we get to the first century, we have some distinct problems with regard to Gentiles, uh, either to include them or to exclude them, and that's where we're picking up today. Uh, last last uh, last lesson we talked about uh, the problem with the Gentiles, and I just reiterate once again. Um, Coming from a Gentile ethnicity or, or a dominant Gentile ethnicity, I want everybody to, to remember that we're we're talking about uh, from a biblical perspective. Uh, the problem with Gentiles was pagan ways, and in fact, uh, a leading of Israel away. This is not in any way to be uh, demeaning of those of a Gentile um, Genetics, but rather a, a reminder that we have certain responsibilities, both uh, both Jew and Gentile, as the people of God, to make sure that our our uh, uh, to check all of our uh, traditions at the door and to make sure that they are in fact uh, consistent with the Word of God. And we know that uh, we know that there are there are traditions that are Jewish and traditions that are Gentile. Um, that are in fact uh, not uh, conducive to a following uh, the pure word. Let's start off in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. There's a lot of... of, uh, prophecies in Isaiah regarding the strangers or the alien or uh, the sojourners. And we're going to look at some of these words today. Uh, Then this is from the uh, Babylonian Talmud from Yevamot 47b. Rabbi Helbo said, Proselytes are as hard for Israel to endure as a sore, because it is written in Scripture, and the proselyte shall join himself with them, and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob. This is a perfect example where the Babylonian Talmud makes a uh, makes a drosh, makes a uh, uh, an interpretation that proselyte and strangers are one and the same. We're going to learn uh, today uh, where that concept comes from. And this is from Numbers Rabbah, 13.16. An idolater who becomes a proselyte and studies the Torah is like a high priest. Uh, that's obviously a positive thing with regard to proselytes to Judaism, but we're going to see that that's not always the case, that uh, uh, words were one thing and actions were another. Here's some questions for us today in this study, and if you've uh, done your homework, then these are questions you've pondered. Uh, were former pagans ever included in the covenant community in the accounts of the Torah, specifically from Genesis to Deuteronomy? How, how can a former pagan become a part of the covenant community? How can they be trusted? Or when was a formal conversion process that made Gentiles into Jews, and I would put that in quotes, formulated? Was it an ancient tradition or one that comes from Scripture? We're going to look at that today especially. 
Is there a scriptural basis for Gentiles to become Jews? Is that what is needed to become a part of the covenant community? And uh, from those questions, you can you can probably see that we uh, we are going to be dealt, uh, dealing with issues that are actually very uh, very specific to some me- matters of identity in messianic uh, in messianic communities and in messianic Judaism. Uh, let's get right into it. Distinguishing between good and bad Gentiles. Uh, although it's clear that Gentiles could lead Israel to pagan ways, it's also clear that all nations were to be drawn to God through Israel, as we've seen. The huge number of Gentiles we saw in that, uh, in the, really the first, the introduction lesson and the, and, the, and, the, uh, and the first lesson, the huge number of Gentiles that began to come to Israel in the years before the first century were a true problem. They were a problem on a couple different uh, areas. They were a problem, first of all, because they had a tendency... Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes they had a tendency to draw Israel away. And, and as we discussed, Ezra and the Great Assembly in the, in the, uh, uh, in the uh, 4th and 5th centuries BCE, they in fact saw this as an issue and, and began to formulate uh, a, a way to distinguish between good and bad Gentiles. And, uh, and in addition to that, we had the issues we talked about last week of clean and unclean, or more specifically, the, the Hebrew words would be more correct, tameh, that being, as we would translate, unclean or impure, and tahor, that which is clean or pure. Those are ritual terms that are, are described specifically with regard to the tabernacle and the temple, but they apply to uh, real life, and they're not always a sin associated. Although sin can put us in these states, certain sins can put us in these states of tameh, which is unclean, or tahor, which is clean, uh, certainly those are not those are, it is not a sin itself uh, to be Tameh. And as we saw last week, and if, if, if you have not uh, delved into that, it's a very important thing, especially in next week's lesson, to discover why it was that Gentiles were considered unclean or Tameh and why they were to be avoided. Uh, it's going to be very important for us to understand when we get into Galatians some of these issues because it comes up, it becomes a very, very prominent thing, especially uh, in the first couple chapters of Galatians. Um, but the fact that, uh, the, fact that the, 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 the sages uh, of the Great Assembly and thereafter, more, more specifically by the 2nd century BCE, found it very important to be able to distinguish between good and bad Gentiles. When I say good, I'm talking about Gentiles that were, were helpful to Israel, that joined with Israel uh, correctly and joined with Israel in a means by which to, uh, uh, to worship uh, the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and bad Gentiles, obviously those who were, uh, were of the wicked, who had no desire to worship the God of Israel, and simply were drawing Israel away, or using Israel for its own purposes. Uh, there's many certain, certain levels of that, what we would call bad Gentiles. Now, the fact is that the word ger, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 14 and also in Yevamot 47b, ger, or gerin, which is the plural, uh, ger is, a, is often translated sojourner or strangers in the book of, uh, or in, in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures. And the fact that they're mentioned in the Torah indicates there has to be a way to distinguish between good ones and bad ones. Uh, because certainly uh, they're not always, it's not always used in a positive way, but certainly the people... Uh, Ger or Gerim were included strangers, sojourners were included in some of the instructions let's look at some of those go to Exodus chapter 12 verse 48 uh, and 49 Exodus 12 
verses uh, 48 through 49. Uh, certainly a very uncomfortable passage for those who want to exclude Gentiles uh, from, the, from the covenant community. Genesis chapter 12, verse 48 and 49. And uh, this is speak, speaking specifically uh, about the Passover and as the Passover was instituted. Uh, this is actually um, uh, before uh, or at the same time of the first Passover, the exodus from Egypt, which is uh, an important thing to remember, that the exodus from Egypt included not only those who are descendants, physical descendants of Jacob, but also a mixed multitude, those who, uh, who had lived with and amongst the uh, the Israelites, and in fact, uh, when given the opportunity to leave Egypt uh, to worship the one true God, they went with them. Uh, Genesis chapter, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 through 49 says, uh, And when a stranger, and that is the word ger, ger, and that is uh, um, uh, gimel, resh, and we would uh, we would understand that in, in transliterate that in, into into a English transliteration as G E R gear. When a gear, when a stranger dwells with you, and this is is basically toshav, and you're going to hear this phrase oftentimes in the Talmud, a gear toshav, which is a stranger who dwells with you, wants to keep the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised, and let him. And then let him come near and keep it, keeping, specifically keeping the Passover. And, it, and when it says keep the Passover, it's talking specifically of eating the Passover, which is the Passover lamb. And he shall be as a native of the land. A native of the land of what? The land of Israel. So a native-born Israelite. For no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And it's speaking of uh, the Passover lamb itself. It's not talking about uh, uh, the Passover uh, Seder, uh, as we would express it today, but the Passover lamb itself. One law, verse 49, one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. One law, one Torah is what it says. Um, turn with me now to Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 10. This is uh, Exodus chapter uh, 20, verse 8 through 10. Now this is after the Exodus. Uh, this uh, all of Israel and the uh, um, mixed multitude now have left, and they are uh, uh, have uh, gone to gone to uh, Sinai, and they're they're there to um, or actually it's just before actually it is Sinai. They're there to uh, receive the Torah from God uh, from the Almighty. Exodus chapter twenty verse eight through twelve. Uh, and it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger, and that is the word gear, again, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day uh, the Sabbath, Sabbath day and honored it. So here we see this, uh, this instructions for the Sabbath day are not to Israel only, but actually to those who are dwelling among them as well. Uh, so the ger, or rather the sojourner, or the stranger that was dwelling among, among them. Next go to Leviticus chapter 17. And this is uh, chapter 17, verse 15. 
says, and, and every person who eats what dies naturally or was torn by beasts, whether it is a native of your own country or a stranger, and again, is that word gear, it shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. So here we see this very, uh, we, as we saw last week, this instruction uh, regarding clean and unclean. Interestingly enough, what do we see here? We see that a stranger... Uh, has the same law given to him regarding with clean and unclean, but more importantly, it says, and bathe with water and be clean until evening, then shall he be clean. A gear can be clean. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, if you haven't followed that logic, uh, when we get in the next uh, few lessons, it's going to be important to, to remember this, that this instruction in the Torah is that a gear could be unclean and clean, depending on his state in the same, in the same uh, way as the native born. Also in this, notice that this is a, a dietary restriction. The same applies both to the uh, native born and to the gear, to the stranger. Numbers chapter 15, 13 through 16. Numbers chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Um, this, this is an instruction. This, is, this follows the instructions of, uh, as, as you know, the, the, um, uh, all of the instructions with regarding to the uh, um, uh, uh, offerings. And, and uh, in addition to that, we, we see this is uh, in the midst of these instructions concerning uh, what are considered to be uh, uh, Jewish identity markers by some in the Messianic movement and certainly those in nominal Judaism, specifically uh, the, the sign of tzitzit, uh, the wearing of the fringes, on the corners of their garments, uh, this is seen to be something that's oh, this is only for um, this is only for the native-born. But listen to this, uh, verse 14 of Genesis chapter, or excuse me, of Numbers chapter. Actually, go to verse 13. Numbers 15:13. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner: in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So he's talking about offerings. Uh, coming into the tabernacle, coming into the temple, and, and continuing in verse 14. And if a stranger dwells with you, that again is ger toshav, a stranger dwells with you, or, what, or whoever is among you throughout your generations, and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly, and for the stranger who dwells with you. Again, ger toshav. An ordinance forever throughout your generations as you are so shall the stranger be before you verse 16 one law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger ger who dwells with you ger toshav so here we see this is a problem for us here we see that God has in fact specifically given instructions regarding ger or gerim strangers Gentiles non-Jews that are uh, first of all including the Passover including giving offerings giving offerings at the tabernacle and later in the temple, uh, dietary uh, restrictions, and including to that the, uh, the, the, the identifiers of the state of Tameh, unclean, and Tahor, clean. So it, it appears that he says one law and one custom, it appears that Gentiles were to be included, included in all of the things that they were doing. <laughs> Unfortunately, the word ger is also word for used for pagan Gentiles. Those, in fact, those nations that would lead the, lead Israel away from from 
the Almighty, from Hashem. So we know that it's not good enough just simply to find all the usage of the word ger and go, well, that's good, so that must apply to Gentiles. Uh, because obviously the word ger is, is, does not give us any further insight uh, into whether a non-Jew should be considered a part of the covenant community or not. Uh, about 270 BCE, uh, or in, in the uh, um, uh, time, that would be the time before Messiah, about 270, 250 to 270 B, uh, BCE, King Ptolemy II, uh, who was king over uh, the Greek-speaking Seleucid uh, kingdom that was found in, uh, uh, or, or Greek, excuse me, Greek-speaking kingdom that was found in Egypt, um, in fact, uh, Commissioned, he had this great desire to know and, and to understand uh, uh, different religions and texts, and uh, he was greatly interested in it. So he commissioned the translation of the Hebrew Tanakh, that is the, the, the Torah, the prophets and the writings, uh, our Hebrew scriptures, what we would consider to be the Hebrew scriptures today. He, had, he commissioned them to be written in the Greek. Uh, he commissioned 70 Jewish scholars and there's debate within nominal Judaism as to whether they did this uh, willingly or not, or whether these to be honorable men or not. But certainly, historically, it would, it, they are seen as the, the, the premier scholars of, uh, of, of, of biblical Judaism at that time. Seventy Jewish scholars, which is why uh, they, the Septuagint is called the Septuagint. That's the 70, uh, meaning 70. It's uh, abbreviated, as you see in, in, in the workbook, we abbreviate it with LXX, or 70 in Roman numerals. Uh, so the Septuagint was actually a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. Uh, it doesn't make them uh, necessarily uh, uh, scripture in the sense of, of the original form, uh, we would certainly recognize the original form, the Hebrew, to be authoritative. But one of the things that is very, very good about the Septuagint is because the apostolic scriptures are written in a uh, similar Greek, uh, Koine Greek, we can really discover a lot of things sometimes about the usage of, uh, of a word in the apostolic scriptures and take it back into the Hebrew and discover what word the Hebrew thinker, the writer, uh, the scribe, as it were, writing that scripture passage down would actually be thinking in his mind or God uh, in, in speaking in Hebrew. Um, so, but the Septuagint also gives us very instructive things with regard to um, this idea of gear. A gear toshav. A Gentile who's dwelling among Israel. Uh, what the Septuagint does is it teaches us actually some very interesting things. So in, in the 4th and the 3rd century BCE, they recognized there was a need to differentiate between good and bad Gentiles. And in fact, that's exactly what they began to do. And in the, in the Septuagint, they actually translate the, all of these passages that I've read, a ger, uh, toshav, or gerim, where it speaks of them in a positive sense, giving them the commandments of the Passover, giving them the commandment of the, of the Sabbath, the Shabbat, giving them the dietary commandments, giving them the, the relationship between clean and unclean so that they could be, know whether they were in a state of clean and unclean, uh, giving them the same offering uh, opportunities to come into the tabernacle and later into the temple. What the Septuagint does is every one of those places, they translate the word ger into a word uh, which we draw the English word proselyte from. So proselutos. Proselutos is a Greek word that did not exist in the 3rd and 4th century BCE. 
those translators of the Septuagint created this word. They created this word to explain something. And when you break the word down, you can see quite clearly that, uh, that what it was they were explaining. Pros, which is toward. Uh, so prosolutos, pro, uh, toward, pros. And then erkomai, which is to come or to go. In other words, to come towards or those who came over. And if you consider this, in, uh, first of all, in the original uh, view of what the word Hebrew means, ivri, Ivri, in fact, means one who has crossed over. Abraham is called the first Ivri. Uh, um, in Genesis chapter 14, he's called the Hebrew. It's the first usage of the word. He crossed over. Where did he cross over from? He came from uh, the land of Ur of the Chaldees, and he crossed over. Where did he cross over? He crossed over the Euphrates. He crossed over from the land of the Gentiles into the promised land. So, God uses this word in Scripture to describe those, to describe those who have crossed over, who have gone from their pagan past, in fact, to cross over into a uh, a depending upon His promises. Uh, Abraham crossed over into the promised land, so he is the Hebrew. He's he is the first Ivrit. Uh, so uh, Ivrit. So we understand then that uh, the Hebrew language Ivrit comes from that word. Uh, so we understand that this is actually a a a variation of that very word to come over, to cross over, to come toward. Uh, it's also temple language. Those who come near. We're going to see when we when we we saw at the beginning in our introduction. We're going to see it as we continue through the study. Ephesians chapter two contains the same temple language. Those who come near. Those who come over. Uh, so we see this prosolutos is an adjective. It's, it's not this, it is not a noun in the sense of there is a proselyte. It is, a, it is an adjective. It's saying one who has come towards us. One who has come near to us. Uh, so it's talking about those who dwell among them. Um, the idea that, that the word proselytos, and this is the confusing part, and a lot of people take this phrase, this English word proselyte, you'll read it in the, uh, in the Jewish Publication Society of the Tanakh, you'll read it in the Torah uh, and in the, in, the, in the Prophets where it talks about a proselyte. A proselyte. In fact, if you read this very passage, uh, Numbers chapter 15 uh, from... Uh, in, 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 the, uh, in, the, um, in the JPS translation and other translations similar, it'll actually say, proselytes, if it's a proselyte among you, same thing, Exodus chapter 12, the proselyte among you must be circumcised, which is an interesting question. How is it that a proselyte is not circumcised in their view? But we're going we're gonna to look deeply into this idea of proselyte. It's very important to understand. The word proselyte, the English word proselyte, comes from the Greek word proselytos, which did not exist as a word on its own. It was created by the translators of the Septuagint. You will not find this word outside of, uh, outside of the Septuagint in the time uh, of the 3rd and, and uh, up until the 2nd century BCE. However, because this process of distinguishing between a clean and an unclean, or between, it, more importantly, between a good and a bad Gentile, uh, it w- was something that was happening about the same time, it came to mean that Gentiles, the way that you identified them is, is that they went through a, a conversion process. What was that conversion process? Sometime in the 3rd and 2nd BC, a ritual process of making proselytes came into being. 
Now remember, we already have the word proselytos that's, that's been given to us by the translators of the Septuagint. So now the, word is being, now the word is being applied to those who go through a ritual conversion. It's very important that you remember, though. The word existed before ritual conversion. It is anachronistic. Uh, nominal Judaism, sadly, anachronistically draws this word all the way back to the dawn of time. Uh, to show that uh, people were going through ritual conversion all the way back. We have no historical basis for that. There certainly is no basis in Scripture for anywhere in Scripture to find ritual conversion, aside from the apocryphal mentions uh, in, you know, for instance, First Maccabees, where it talks about uh, ritual conversion and pros- proselytes being, uh, going through the ritual conversion of pro- of, uh, of, uh, to become Jews. And here's the point. The rabbinic solution to this issue of distinguishing between good and bad Gentiles is let's just make the good Gentiles into Jews. No longer will we, they, there won't be Gentiles anymore. They'll just be Jews. Well, how can we make them Jews? Uh, we're going to see that, in fact, this formal process, the formal process that they, de- that they developed that was a rabbinical uh, 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 creation is not, is not so far off of uh, some things that you can derive from Scripture. Uh, certainly, although Scripture doesn't command it and doesn't tell us how it's done, it's very easy to see where it came from. And part of our, part of our job in reading these uh, Scriptures and in studying the historical basis is not to lay fingers of blame, not to point fingers of blame towards people and say, oh, they got it all wrong, even though may, they may have. Our purpose is to discover what did God truly intend and certainly, there is, there is a basis for some of these instructions we're going to see. So, a ritual conversion to become a proselyte in about the second or possibly as, uh, in the third century BCE was a formal process that was developed by nominal Judaism to, in fact, uh, make good Gentiles into Jews. They could become Jews. And I've given you uh, Yevamot uh, 47a and b <coughs> Excuse me. Let's go through and read those because they because it gives us this this uh, very uh, instructive way for us to understand the formal process. Um, so beginning, uh, it says our rabbis taught. If at this is on page twenty five of your workbook, our rabbis taught. If at the present time a man desires to become a proselyte, he is to be addressed as follows: What reason have you for desiring to become a proselyte? Remember, this is uh, in 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 uh, in, uh, in the Greek, it would be proselytos. In the, in the, uh, in the uh, Hebrew, it would be ger. Uh, to become a ger? Uh, how do you become a ger? But let's continue. Do, not, do you not know that Israel at the present time are persecuted and oppressed, despised, harassed, and overcome by afflictions? If he replies, I know, and yet I am unworthy, he is accepted forthwith and has given instructions of some of the minor and some of the major commandments. He is informed of the sin of the neglect of the commandments of the gleaning, the forgotten sheaf, the corner, and the poor man's tithe. Notice, these are ones that we would consider to be weighty commandments. He is also told of the punishment for the transgression of the commandments. Furthermore, he is addressed thus. Also notice, by the way, he doesn't go and tell them all. He says, give them neglect of some of the commandments. And then the punishment for transgression of the commandments. Furthermore, he is addressed thus. Be it known to you, that before you came, into, came to this condition, if you have eaten suet, that is, uh, uh, that was his unclean, unclean meat, 
you would not have been punishable with karet to be cut off from the covenant. If you had profaned the Sabbath, you would not have been punished with stoning. But now, were you to eat suet or pork, you would be punished with karet to be cut off. Were you to be profane the Sabbath, you would be punished with stoning. And as, it, and as he is informed of the punishment for the transgression of the commandments, so he is informed of the reward granted for their fulfillment. He is told, be it known to you, that the world to come is made only for the righteous, and that Israel, at the present time, unable to bear either too much prosperity or too much suffering. And here, and what he's saying here is, now you have access to the world to come, whereas before you would not. He is not, however, to be persuaded or dissuaded too much. If he is accepted, he is circumcised forthwith. And we're going to talk about this. Uh, this is physical circumcision. Should any shred which render the circumcision remain invalid, in other words, part not cut off, he is to be circumcised a second time. As soon as he is healed, arrangements are to be made for his immediate ablution, that is, ritual immersion in a mikvah, when two learned men must stand by his side and acquaint him with some of the minor commandments and some of the major ones. When he comes up after his ablution, his immersion, he is deemed to be an Israelite in all respects. Uh, amazing. By the way, this passage from Yevamot 47 and B is uh, when we look at the Sifra on Numbers 15 and the origin of, of uh, and the original list, we see that circumcision, immersion, and making an offering are included. So we know that Yevamot 47b, this this tradition of, of circumcision, it says our rabbis taught, actually would postdate this, the uh, the end of the temple when an offering was not. Uh, given. So, it, it's not to say that circumcision or the ritual conversion didn't exist until after the temple in 70 of the Common Era. It's simply to say that the only record of the, the list, uh, we only have two records of the list, one from uh, Sifron Numbers 15, which actually includes offering, and we have this list in the Talmud. The Talmudic ex uh, uh, list is, is very detailed, as you see here. What do we see? There's an injunction uh, that a that a one who wants to become a ritual Jew or to become a proselyte, as it's described here in, Bab in the Babylonian Talmud, he must go. He must accept to accept the whole Torah, both written and oral. It's very important you understand this. The whole Torah to accept the law meant to take the law upon themselves meant to accept everything that was written and everything that was uh, adjudicated or, or in addition to that, given orally. In other words, uh, the traditions that went along with the written Torah. It's very important to remember that the uh, ritual circumcision required accepting of the whole law, which at that time would have been considered both what was written and what was orally transmitted. And next, circumcision for males actually had to physically go through circumcision. Uh, and then lastly, after it is healed, then, then a immersion and reminder again of the, uh, of the commandments. Some of the, some of the greater, some of the lesser. It's very interesting that uh, in, in, in reading this, the Talmud does not say, hey, teach them all the commandments and then they can, and then they can be a part. That it's it's uh, some greater commandments and some lesser commandments. Um, uh, so, so we got this idea of, of by the way, the, re the way that we get the, the oral Torah included there, so it talks about the corner of the poor man's tithe uh, and the, poor, the corner of the field and the poor man's tithe. The, these include the traditions associated with them. So it's the, it's the written and the oral, uh, oral Torah. Once this happened, once you went through, a Gentile went through this uh, process, uh, a male including circumcision, a female uh, simply... Uh, the uh, accepting of the whole Torah and, and, uh, and ritual immersion. 
once they came up out of the ablution, they said they're called a Israelite indeed. In fact, the Talmud goes to great depths of, of discovering what it is that was most important. And it's very interesting that there's a debate uh, about whether, uh, whether it was the circumcision that made the person into a Jew, as they would refer, or was it the ablution or the immersion that made it uh, or finalized it. And uh, there's a debate between the two houses of Hillel and Shammai. And what you discover is the ablution, the immersion, is actually considered to be superior. It's considered to be the most important part of this process. Uh, the last step is to be the most important part. It's where it all happens. In other words, no longer are you a Gentile, now you are a Jew. In fact, to the degree that ethnicity, uh, previous family relations that were that were that existed as a Gentile were annulled, and new family relations are established. It's very important to remember it also with regard to this this idea of of ritual conversion or circumcision, as it's called in the uh, in the uh, apostolic scriptures. This process annulled your previous family, and you became part of a new family. You became a literal ethnic. Uh, DNA uh, uh, invested descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the degree that the Talmud goes on talking about previous relationships don't exist, that if your sister uh, as a Gentile then also went through conversion, that you could actually have a marriage between a brother and a sister because, after all, now they're just Jews, which their previous relationship was on the basis of them being Gentile. Uh, obviously, this seems a little bit extreme, and the Talmud would, would, and there's no record of people doing that, but the point being made is how important it was that you became part of a new family a new family by going through ritual conversion. It is being part of that new family that makes the, 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 uh, this process so important. They became, as it were, Jews. Um, but is that true? Is that exactly what, what circumcision or the actual act of circumcision does? Let's, let's look into that. First of all, circumcision, uh, mul is spelled, in Hebrew spelled mem vav lamed, uh, which is to circumcise. It just simply means to cut. The first instance of this is found in, in Genesis chapter 17, Genesis 17, 1 through 16. Let's read the whole passage there uh, with regard to circumcision. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 16. Says when Abraham, or excuse me, when uh, Abram was ninety years old, ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "I am the, the I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make a covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly." Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, "As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations." Uh, interesting goyim. Uh, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be. Uh, Abraham or Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. Uh, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will Also, I will give to you and your descendants after you the land which you are a, in which you are a stranger. Uh, guess what that word is? Gear. Uh, all the land of, is, uh, of Canaan, an everlasting possession, and I will be uh, your God. Actually, uh, hold on a second. The word stranger is not gear there. It's uh, magur, uh, which has a, uh, has a uh, 
um, a uh, a similar route, but it is uh, it is not Gare there. It's a Magor, a stranger. It is a sojourner. Um, going back to where I left off. Uh, uh, and Abraham, verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, uh, throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a sign. Notice, notice he's talking about a covenant. It's a sign of the covenant between God and, and uh, the, uh, you. In verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money should, must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. Has, he has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, uh, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give, her, give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Uh, we see now here, here, here Abraham's given this commandment and traditionally uh, 318 of his servants uh, also go through circumcision. Uh, his uh, his, um, his son who is already uh, here, uh, Ishmael, also is circumcised. So we did see that this, uh, this is not speaking of a ritual circumcision. It's a, it's a sign of the covenant. This is not talking about conversion into Judaism. This is simply talking about being circumcised. All male babies at age 8 uh, um, uh, also, uh, from excuse me, eight, day, 8 days old also were to be circumcised actually on the 8th day. The next one is Genesis chapter 34. And I find this a little bit intriguing and wonder why it was that Paul, uh, not, not to put words in Paul's uh, mouth, but why it was that Paul does not allude to this. And, and whether he did or not, it's not recorded for us in Scripture. But this seems to be a, an extremely useful understanding of the issue of circumcision with regard to inclusion in a family. Genesis chapter 34, verse 15. Let, let me just set the stage here. This is, this is right after uh, Jacob has returned to the land of Israel uh, with his family. And, and his sons. And we see in this example, uh, this, this account, where uh, uh, the, his daughter, uh, Dina, is raped by the, uh, by the uh, son of the uh, uh, leader of the, the town of Shechem. And uh, in fact, then, uh, and he wants to take her as his wife. He wants uh, Dina to be his wife. But whereas the sons of Jacob now go to uh, um, uh, Hamor's son and uh, explain to him that that can't happen except and this is the this is beginning in verse 15 but on this condition will we consent to you that is that you could take our, our daughter or excuse me our sister Dina as your wife if you will become as we are if every male of you is circumcised then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one People. Interesting. Here it is that the that the uh, sons of Jacob who have been circumcised, and this is now just generations away, you know, two generations away from uh, Abraham and the original instruction with, with regard to this, they understand the significance of circumcision as being a family identifier. 
they see it as a family identifier. It is, in fact, at the organ of procreation that it takes place, thereby extending and, and at, at on an eight-day-old baby who has no choice, uh, uh, thereby extending this to, from generation to generation, fathers and mothers having their sons circumcised on the eighth day, uh, uh, extending the covenant as it were, the sign of the covenant, more importantly, to the next generation, that it was a family, and that it was a family expression, that it's an expression of being part of the family. And in fact, of course, we understand in this account in Genesis chapter 34 that the sons of Jacob are using this as a ruse, and after, uh, after Shechem uh, has all their males circumcised, they go in and, they, and uh, Shimon and, and uh, Levi, uh, Simon and, and Levi, go in and, and, and kill them all. And in fact, um, uh, um, th- this great sin, as Jacob describes it, uh, takes place because of this ruse about circumcision. And they use it simply as a means by which to uh, unarm them. Uh, in Exodus chapter 12, we saw, or Exodus chapter 12, we saw in fact that, that circumcision was something that was required for inclusion in the eating the Passover lamb. Physical circumcision was required. If someone was circumcised, they could eat. If they weren't, they couldn't. Uh, Leviticus chapter 12, male babies. Uh, Leviticus 12, verses 2 through 3, all male babies must be circumcised on the eighth day. Go to Leviticus chapter 12 real quickly. Verse 2, and we'll stop reading in verse 3. He shall bring to Aaron's sons the priest. Excuse me, that's the wrong one. That's Leviticus 2. Hold on, Leviticus 12. <clears throat> says, so speak to the children of Israel, saying, if a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. We looked at this last week, or uh, in the previous lesson. She shall be tame for seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be tame, unclean. And on the eighth day of the flesh, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin, in other words, the male child, shall be circumcised. So on the eighth day, every male child was to be circumcised. Uh, go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Something in unusual occurs in Deuteronomy. Uh, we read, of course, that Exodus, all those that were circumcised, ate of the Passover lamb, and uh, left Egypt. Uh, something we discover, though, when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 10, is in fact... Um, actually, I'm going to get to that in a second. Let's, uh, let's just go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15 to start with. Um, it was Joshua 5 I was going to get into, but I'll go to that in a second. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15 says, The Lord delighted in you, uh, only, excuse me, that the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse... Um, and we'll read through verse uh, 8. If any of you are driven out of the farthest parts of under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you. This is part of uh, an ex- uh, this is God telling them what's going to happen to them uh, when they go into the land and when they sin. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possess. In other words, after they repent. The Lord your God will bring you into, into the land your fathers possess, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies 
and those who hate you who, and who per- those who hate you who persecuted you and you will again obey the voice of the Lord your God and do all his commandments which I command you today here we talk about circumcision as being given the spiritual quality it's a circumcising of the heart we are commanded to circumcise our hearts the foreskin of our hearts to tear off that which is hardened towards him and in fact to to to, uh, to expose ourselves our, 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 our soul to him and here uh, God says, I will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, uh, like the Shema says, that you may live. We see that, that this is something, this is, a, this is actually a Deuteronomy 30, as we see in, Eze- in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 37. This is actually a, a promise of the new covenant. Uh, this is the promise of the new covenant, that God is going to circumcise the hearts of those that he is in covenant with. So, so circumcision is given a, a metaphor. It's connected with love, the metaphor of love. Uh, now go to Joshua chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. And in Joshua chapter 5, we can see, in fact, that the generation that, uh, that left Israel, yes, or the land of Egypt, yes, they were circumcised. But when we get to, uh, when we get to, uh, um, when we get to this, <laughs> this time when, when uh, the descendants, uh, those who uh, get ready to go into land, uh, maybe that hadn't been done on them. So it was, uh, verse 1, uh, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was, there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made uh, the flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of their foreskins. Now it says again the second time. It's, it's not talking about uh, these having done it uh, the second time, but rather that it's, it's uh, what took place, uh, what, what took place, uh, uh, it says at the hill of the foreskins, they actually had foreskins still. And so, uh, and verse 4, And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all of the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way, after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness, on the way, as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked four years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they had not obeyed the voice, they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 7, Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was, when they had finished circumcising the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. Uh, at, at verse, verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Again, this metaphor, rolled away the approach of Egypt, the circumcision, is taking away, the cutting away. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped at Gilgal and kept the Passover. Remember, they couldn't eat the Passover without being circumcised. So this is the first time that they've actually experienced the Passover since leaving kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the plains of Jericho. Uh, interesting um, that, that uh, this uh, act had not actually been done on them until they got ready to enter the land. We do get this picture 
of entering the land tied to this. Uh, this is where the, where the rabbis would have, uh, or the proto-rabbis, those uh, who preceded, the sages would have gotten the idea that ritual conversion, that circumcision, that part of ritual conversion, that, and, and calling it all circumcision, uh, that circumcision is what not only made people a part of the family, but also gave them a part in the world to come as, the, as that promised land, as that metaphor for the world to come. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, it says, if you, uh, actually, let's, get, let's go up to verse 1. Uh, if you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and I will put away your abominations out of my sight, and then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth and judgment and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your, foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. How, how ironic it is that here are those who are physically circumcised. Uh, and we see this again in Jeremiah 9.25 and also uh, through, through 10 verse 2. Uh, those who are physically circumcised did not necessarily have hearts that were turned towards the Lord. So the act, the physical act, was not what accomplished uh, what not accomplished the necessary change. It's not what brought men into love of God. It was a necessary requirement for obedience. But it was not what made them faithful to God. Go to Ezekiel chapter 44. Ezekiel chapter 44, and this is speaking about the time of the temple. Uh, the temple that has not yet been built yet. Listen, it says, Thus is the Lord God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary. Uh, this, this would exclude those who say, Oh, well, I'm circumcised in my heart. That's all that matters. God says no. No foreigner, no uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. Uh, so in the Ezekiel temple which is the temple that's yet to be built will not be someone's not uncircumcised physically not circumcised will not be permitted in go to Acts chapter 16 uh, you know when we when we talk about circumcision again we, we we always need to understand that in the apostolic scriptures the the word circumcision almost always almost always refers to ritual conversion that is those steps that we talked about before the destruction of the temple, would have included a, a, an accepting, uh, a, 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 uh, an agreement to all the written and oral Torah, a making of an offering uh, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and a um, and uh, circumcision, physical circumcision for males, and then ritual immersion, ablution. Uh, after the destruction of the temple, would have had included all those except the offering of, a, of, of an offering. Listen, this is what it says in Acts chapter one, uh, 16, verse 1. Then he came, speaking of Paul, came to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, a son, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Okay, get this picture. Modern Judaism says that anyone who is born of a Jewish mother who is observant is considered Jewish. If you were to make Aliyah to Israel, if you can show, if you can show your mother's Jewish, that's all that matters. Um, uh, that, that is a modern practice that took place uh, in the, uh, from the days of the pogroms uh, and the Inquisition on 
which basically because uh, because w Jewish women uh, were being raped or or uh, uh, or other things that would uh, to 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 actually uh, pollute the genetic lying of Jewish people, and so. Uh, in, in rulings, it was determined then that any any child born of a Jewish woman would be, in fact, considered Jewish. Uh, but in ancient times, that is not true. It's clearly not true. It's something that it, they had to have born from a father who was Jewish in order to be considered Jewish. So Timothy, in the first century, was not considered Jewish. Now, we could debate whether that's true or not, but he would not have been considered Jewish. Let me continue reading. Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Paul, uh, or Luke here, wants us to know that this is true. He was well spoken of by the believers who were at Lystra and Iconium. Uh, Iconium. Paul wanted to have him to go, with, go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Paul physically took, or physically had Timothy circumcised. Uh, why? Uh, was it for him to become Jewish? Uh, no. Uh, uh, it, it, whether Paul considered him Jewish or not, we're going to see in Galatians, absolutely not. He would not have considered this act to have made him Jewish. However, in the culture and religious understanding of the day, in nominal Judaism, Timothy was not Jewish. Paul wanted him to be accepted as that, as, as if he were and so he had him circumcised, or certainly, that's possible, or certainly he wanted him uh, to be uh, circumcised as a matter of obedience. Regardless of which way, Paul was not in any way saying that, that by circumcising Timothy that he was making him Jewish. And we're going to see why that's important to understand. More importantly, uh, uh, like I said, that Paul had this done in obedience to the commandment that all be circumcised. Uh, but it's clear here that because of Jews in the region, region Paul has some sort of uh, basis for wanting to uh, include Timothy. Uh, 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 like I say, whether it's, whether it's part of ritual conversion or not, it was more importantly a part of the obedience to the commandment. We're going to see here, uh, as we get into the book of Galatians, that Paul would not have considered Timothy to be um, uh, Jewish by act of ritual conversion. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a passage often quoted by detractors of uh, of messianic uh, uh, views is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 19. Paul is speaking to the, to the assembled believers at Corinth. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Okay, now let's stop there. Talk about take that in view of what, what we just have been talking about with regard to circumcision. Remember, circumcision is almost always shorthand for ritual conversion to Judaism. Uh, so, so here it is: those who have gone through conversion are nothing. I'm, excuse me, as I paraphrase. And those who, whether someone has gone through conversion is nothing, and whether someone uh, has not gone through conversion is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Well, what's a commandment of God? Circumcision. So, clearly Paul's not teaching against circumcision here, or that it doesn't matter. What he's teaching is, he's teaching that ritual conversion is not what, is not what matters. Uh, so, that's another reason why we could go back to Acts chapter 16 and debate that maybe Paul didn't have Timothy circumcised uh, because of pressure from other people, as it seems to imply, but rather was simply out of obedience to the commandment. Certainly, this passage would give us that kind of... Uh, that kind of uh, 
view. What we need to understand in our discussions uh, of these of these things is that there is a there is a right view of circumcision. Scripture has a high view of circumcision as it as it relates. Uh, first of all, physically, as it relates to the the concept of, of family and uh, the sign of the covenant, uh, Abraham, our father, uh, Isaac, our father, Jacob, our father, and our understanding of our connection to them, but also in our responsibility to pass that the teaching of the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, to uh, our our sons, our and our and our descendants. Um, so what we see is that uh, circumcision, although circumcision is a male, is an act committed on the male child, all, all benefit uh, by this concept of circumcision. Male and female benefit by this concept of circumcision as it relates to a sign of the covenant. But in addition to that, it becomes a is it becomes an important metaphor for understanding that just because we go through ritual. Uh, or, or even commanded acts, it is the change of the heart that God is, 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 is going to accomplish to those who turn towards Him, to those who come to Him, to those who are, who are made a part of the covenant community. It is, the, it is a metaphor of the heart. But what we see is this use of proselytos, proselyte, and this confusion of that word and the confusion of the word circumcision has now led us to read some of the apostolic scriptures with a view that God does not care about the commandments that he's given to us. That no longer does he care about the commandments regarding circumcision. To say this is to deny the very uh, covenants given Within, within those commandments, within the Torah itself. Uh, circumcision was a, was a sign of the covenant, a command given long before the Torah was given. It was given as a sign that God has a community, a covenant community, a family, and that family is his family forever, and he will always protect and preserve that family. That he that that family has a part in the world to come, as we will see. This is an important concept. So it's very important for us as as we deal with this issue, as we approach the historical background for this book of Galatians, that we understand that the formal process of joining to Israel uh, uh, in in the in the times of the first century was called circumcision, and uh, that process was in fact. Uh, based upon good instructions from God, and that we should not confuse the traditional ritual uh, ritual uh, conversion uh, process with the actual commandments of God, and that and that we would uh, that we should not confuse or discount uh, the commandments of God simply because we are going to read the negative side. Uh, the negative side of of these these things, as we've seen talking about this this rabbinic solution, uh, we can see that where they got it from is actually very, 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 uh, it's very understandable, it's very logical to understand a ritual conversion. Uh, after all, you, you don't know who a Gentile is, let's just make him a Jew. How do you make him a Jew? Well, the same way that God made Abraham uh, a part of the covenant or given the sign of the covenant. In the same way that we talk about uh, circumcision uh, done by the uh, male uh, uh, 
uh, or excuse me, done by the father on this male child of eight. This this incredible uh, idea of of giving, passing on to our the descendants after us, the promises of our forefathers, promises made to our forefathers by God to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Uh, let's close. In, let's close with uh, with the, the the prayer that we. Uh, um, that we pray at, at a circumcision where a, mo, uh, a mohel actually at the direction of, of the father and fo- in place of the father actually uh, fulfills the commandment of, of uh, the eighth day on male children. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified the beloved ones, the beloved one from the womb and placed the mark of decree in his flesh and sealed his offspring with the sign of the holy covenant. Therefore, as reward for this, O living God, our portion, our rock, may you issue the command to rescue the beloved soul within our flesh from destruction for the sake of his covenant that he has placed in our flesh. Blessed are you, Lord, who established the covenant. 